Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. It's just outside the 45, you could say in the central position, a yard outside the 45, taken by Henry Shefton, hit much higher in the air, accurately well, and uh, leveled at the point of ease. Coolino on, he get tipped with Arden, talk Coolino on, he get Kilkenny, the Hekanisham on in the Heron, Kilkenny in case, you heard it for the first time ever, they're going for five in a row. Ah, uh, Naomi, that brings back some memories, uh, long car journeys on a Sunday afternoon, I think. <laughs> That was, of course, the voice of Michal Amwerhete, probably the most legendary Irish sports commentator of recent times. Yeah, and the reason that you're hearing Michal today is because, you guessed it, this episode, it's all about the GAA, or Gaelic Athletic Association. Uh, The GAA was founded in 1884 to promote Gaelic games, and it has played a key role in the lives of millions of Irish people at home and abroad ever since. Uh, By the way, just in case you're wondering, Naomi is recording on location at the moment from a super echoey room, which is why you're hearing a little bit of reverb on her end. Well, hey, you know, what can you do? That's the life of a high-flying journalist, eh, Naomi? So, first and foremost, do you know the four Gaelic sports of the GAA? I mean, I wouldn't have actually known there was four of them. Mm. Um, so there's obviously Gaelic football and hurling. Right. And then apart from that, you're going to have to tell me. Okay, right. I mean, to, to be honest, I didn't know this either until I looked it up. Uh, so Gaelic, uh, Gaelic football and hurling are by far and away the most popular, but there's also Gaelic handball. Okay, that does ring a bell, actually. Mm. So I think I have seen some handball courts around in rural Ireland, but I don't think I've actually seen anyone play it. That's true. What's the fourth one then? Okay, the fourth one, I listen, I think this is a bit of a phone-in, but... It's rounders. Rounders? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. I, I actually love rounders. Mm. It's it's actually one of the games that I used to be maybe slightly good at. Mm. But I, I actually didn't know that was an Irish thing. Um, It's just, a, it's a kind of baseball or cricket. Right, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love rounders too. It's really, it's really dramatic and intense actually when you play it. Yeah. Um, I don't know now, listen, if it's specifically Irish. Um, But there is um, a, a particular Irish set of rules which are different to anywhere else. Okay. And in fact, I mean, whether it's Irish or not, uh, the GAA were uh, actually the first organisation to lay down an official set of rules for rounders back in 1884. So I think we can make a grab for it maybe. Anyway, since we began this podcast, uh, the GAA has been, by a long shot, the number one requested episode topic from our listeners. Yeah, I think that's probably not surprising because it's it's hard to overestimate the role that the GAA plays in Irish society. So um, it stems from the association's colourful history, but also because the Gaelic Games are just hugely, hugely popular. So the Gaelic Games are by far the most popular sports in Ireland. And each year, the sports season culminates with the All-Ireland Finals in September. And they're held in Croke Park, which is always filled to capacity with more than 80,000 people. Right, sure. And if any of our listeners have ever been in Dublin on a day of an All-Ireland Final, it's something else to behold. Yeah. The place is absolutely swarming with uh, these jerseys from whichever counties are playing. Uh, it's a huge national event. And I, that num- those numbers might not sound huge to maybe American listeners, but like for a small mm. country, it's a lot. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's bigger than Galway City, for instance. You have people who... <laughs> 
will be oh, in that there's city. There's a whole new city just gathers in Dublin on that day. And this, the, the statistics are really uh, impressive, actually. Um, according to 2003 figures, which is, I suppose is a while ago now, but um, even so, Gaelic football represented 34% of all sport attendances in the Irish Republic, and hurling accounted for 23%. So that's 57% between the two of them. Uh, so in other words, almost two out of every three people watching sport in Ireland are watching a Gaelic game. Mm. Um, and to put that in perspective with other sports, uh, the, that figure is about 8% for rugby. That's really striking now because I think if you ask many people what is the most popular sport in Ireland, because Ireland's so good at rugby, they probably say rugby because, you know, we, we do mm. have that kind of international clout in it. But 8% is so low. Now, I would, I would say actually that has increased a lot since 2003 because that's been the period in which Ireland has really sort of come out as like a very strong rugby nation but it, you mm. know it's I wonder how much it is now the thing that's really impressive now that you have to take into account is that the Gaelic games are amateur sports so GAA mm. players do not get paid for playing even if they're like nationally famous athletes and I know this might sound crazy if you're used to following sports where stars have like multi-million pound or euro or dollar contracts yeah sure and like you know relatively speaking um the gaa players are, are really famous in ireland you know yeah. they're household names uh they do get money in sponsorships some of them so like you'd often see them on let's say like a cereal commercial or something or what have you mm-hmm. but um these games are actually among some of the only non-professional sports in the world the whole ethos of the gaa is basically that it's done for the love of the game and it's something that people often bring up if you if you talk to them about it and you know what's good about the GAA they often say that this is one of the things that they treasure about it you know that people are doing it for passion and not for money yeah and that passion really comes across when people talk about it it's almost like there's almost a kind of philosophy behind it sometimes when you hear like real uh, Gaelic games uh, aficionados Um, but another distinctive thing and that feeds into that as well is that they're really intensely local so you'll find Gaelic teams even in the tiniest little villages and townlands of Ireland you know there might be a place with just three houses but you can be absolutely sure that there's a GAA pitch somewhere nearby yeah and uh you know sometimes even you know when people move out of the countryside and move to Dublin they'll often go back regularly to their hometown for practice so that they can keep playing for their local team yeah and I think that's definitely part of the pride that people feel in these games you know those people that are up on their pitch are like their local primary school teacher the local postman (laughs) you know the hairdresser farmers students so they were you know it's a real community thing and that extends even of course to the diaspora so you will find Gaelic games being played amongst Irish communities and locals as far afield as Vietnam Uh, there's a team there's a team in Singapore in Zimbabwe and Saudi Arabia so today we're looking into the fascinating history of this most Irish of institutions and how the GAA has played an integral part in shaping the politics and cultural outlook of the modern Irish nation We'll also speak to people around the world who have been helping to bring the games to an international audience. And Naomi, we're really happy to say that today's episode has been sponsored by Gerard Mallon. He would like to dedicate this episode to his lovely girlfriend, Bethany Luzny from Iowa, who is a huge fan of the podcast. And it is also her birthday in July. So happy birthday, Bethany. Happy birthday, Bethany. So before we get any further, let's hear from some real GAA devotees. So last November, I dropped down to a match of the Dublin Under-21 Football Championship. It was Round Towers versus Ballyboden down at the Sancta Maria pitches at the foot of the Dublin Mountains. And it was a bitterly cold night. You can almost hear it in the voices. So let's let's hear from some of the people who were there that night cheering on the lads from the stands.
My name is Frank Costello. I'm from Clondalkin and I'm retired. You look freezing there, are you? I, it's cold enough. You know, it's currently cold enough. Takes dedication, does it? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, whatever about me, these guys, it takes huge dedication because, I mean, they're out here, they have they have armor lives to do with a lot of them in the school. So, um, yeah, to come out here on a night like this, at this time, and play, yeah, it's serious dedication. Do you think it's an important part of Irish culture? Oh, it's huge. Absolutely huge, yeah. And whatever about it being maybe watered down a bit in Dublin, when you step outside of Dublin, you know what GAA is about. It's... I mean, it's a passion, you know. It's, uh, yeah, certainly. It's a, it's a huge part of Irish society, yeah. My name is uh, Marie Crotty. I'm involved with Round Towers Girls Football. I played with Waterford myself uh, back in the 90s. And when would you have started playing? Oh, I, I would have played at, 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 uh, when I was 10 years of age, my local club, Bella McGarber. We won 10 club All-Irelands, which wasn't too bad. And, uh, and five county with Waterford. And I think our, our club dominated the Watford scene. So, um, yeah, so I'm playing a long, long time. You know, not now, not playing anymore. Doing a bit of coaching now. Yeah. But big part of your life, anyway. Uh, yes, very, very much so. Yeah, in my family. Yeah, I coached the, the girls uh, under 14 and under under 13 girls football. Just come out and support all the lads here. And why do you think the uh, the Gaelic games have prevailed in Ireland against the international games? They're even more popular even today. I think that. Well, they're not getting paid. They're doing it because they want to. You go back down to your club levels, and I think it all starts from there. And people washing jerseys, nobody gets paid, and everybody's involved. And there's a role for everybody in a club. I think international. I think it is. You know, it's money. Money is a big thing in it. I think. Yeah. It's very local spirit. Oh, it is. I mean, it's a community thing, without a doubt. It goes back like down to the simple things, lining pitches, as I said, washing, washing uh, clothes like the, the, the mothers here are washing and, and lads, the feathers are putting the lines, the nets and stuff up. So, yeah, so everyone has a role to play. And uh, would you say it's an important part of Irish identity as well? Oh, it is, yeah. I mean, you go out to, um, if you were to travel, young people travelling to America or just even London, the first thing you do is look for your lo- uh, a GA club there because you surely know somebody and you kind of get settled there. So it definitely plays a major part, no matter what part. And even with ladies' football now, I think they've, they've set up in Japan and everywhere, you know. So it's, it's definitely growing all over the world. Yeah, I'm a terrorist man, train and play with some of the lads here, so supporting them on. How old would you have been when you first got involved? Uh, I was seven. Yeah, yeah. So inbred in us from an early age. It's very good. It's very good at building your skills um, and... Uh, getting to know people in your community as well and then with the different roles in the club so whether you play or you volunteer whether you coach you're involved in administration it's all helping each other out um, so yeah it, it's very good on that side and then um, I suppose the spreading of Irish people globally now as well I would have played um, Gaelic football in uh, Australia as well so uh, you're kidding where'd you play in Australia? Uh, I was based in Perth based in Perth for a summer yeah yeah. so uh, still friends there for life I suppose that was big, eight years ago big Gaelic scene over there is there? Uh, yeah it's expanding quite rapidly it is over there yeah, I suppose an awful lot of people emigrating over. Again, it's a community feel over there. We'd all start out, we'd have our games in the morning. All the teams, there was only six teams in Perth, would take it in turns to set up in the kitchen, get the bar ready, um, and each club would have a different job to do each weekend. So a real community uh, environment over there. It's brilliant as well going over because it helps you make friends. I have three sons and they all play. Yeah. Since what age? Five, six. They've grown up with it. Yeah, I'd swear by it. Well, I suppose I would have grown up with it myself, so my dad would have. Um, my, some of my family would have played, but I think it plays a huge part in the community, yeah. Play a bodyboard with these two men beside me. 30 next year, I've been playing since I was seven, eight. Most lads living around the area play GA and have been since they were toddlers. Um, 
in the locality it plays a big role yeah there's definitely still a big sense of community in Ireland uh, so has a big role to play with Irish identity and it's obviously it's huge abroad as well for the diaspora would you say it has an important role in the community oh hugely hugely both in the young and the older person as well so it is, keeps a community within a, a small village it is fairly local yeah well particularly round towers it's all pretty much in around the village itself so so it is um, would you say that uh, sports like this, the traditional sports, are an important part of Irish identity as well? I'd say it is, yeah. More so than soccer. It's, it keeps a community, as I said, where soccer is the just go wherever the money is. Where a lot of people that grow up in the club and they tend to stay within that club and support that club once they're finished playing. So it goes on from their, their young onto their old people. So it is so it's hugely important. Yeah. Bowden would go on to get the better of Round Towers and end up in the Dublin Under-21 final, where they lost out ultimately to Northsiders in Fianna. But Tim, you heard a bit of the passion there that people have for these sports. And for people who've never seen them, we better explain a bit what you're seeing when the games are being played on that pitch. What what are the sports like? Okay, disclaimer here for listeners, uh, Naomi. <laughs> I have never once played a Gaelic game in my life, nor Ever. really any non-Gaelic games, uh, to be totally honest. Um, um, so uh, these rules are all a bit theoretical to me, so be a bit forgiving, guys. Um, Naomi, have you ever played GA? Uh, Tim, you may know I'm among the slowest of land mammals and the least <laughs> coordinated. So, you know, field sports aren't really for me. Uh, no, Naomi, you're being very unkind to yourself. I seem to remember that you were a bit of a terror on our university's rugby team for a while. Wasn't that true? Uh, it's exaggerating a bit. I mean, I, sh- I shined for one glorious but brief 80 minutes when I got woman <laughs> of the match. Uh, but then I got really spooked about injuries, oh. basically. So I, I hung up my mouth guard. Uh, but I have, in fact, been on a Gaelic football uh, pitch. I have been in a game. Oh. Because when I was a teenager, I went down to the Gaeltacht or Irish language summer school. And they actually didn't believe that I didn't know how to play this sport, Gaelic football. <laughs> and so they just thrust me onto the pitch okay. and were just like, go play. So yeah, that's my exposure. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, that's, you know, I think that's, that's a fair enough experience. We will try to do our best to do them justice. <laughs> All the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and to be to be honest, uh, GAA culture is so dominant and has been so dominant for Irish people growing up that even if you've never participated, you can't really escape uh, the culture and you can't escape the basic concepts anyway. Maybe a bit like um, soccer in the UK. So like we said, the two main games that most people think of when they bring up the GAA are hurling and Gaelic football. Right. Uh, these are both field sports, but they're pretty different to one another, aren't they? Yeah. So let's start with hurling. It's also called camogie in the uh, old female version. Hurling is is an ancient sport, really ancient, and possibly one of the oldest sports in the world. Right, yeah. Famously, of course, hurling features largely in Irish mythology, uh, particularly in the ancient epic The Tawn. And if you've listened to our Half-Pint episode on The Tawn, you'll already know that the hero of that epic, Cúchulain, was quite the hurling player. And he gets, mm-hmm. his, uh, he gets his name, even, by killing the hound of his master with a hurley stick and ball. Uh, the earliest text of that epic dates from the Middle Ages, but the oral tradition probably goes back a few centuries before that. And in fact, Naomi, there are other accounts of hurling which reference a mythical hurling match between the Tuhadedanen and the Firbolg, two big kind of groups of ancient Irish peoples, in 1072 BC. Wow! Hmm. Can you imagine the commentary for that much? <laughs> 
not much different, I'd say. It would put the Icelandic commentators to shame, you know. I, I mean, it actually wouldn't surprise me if something like that was true. There's something just so viscerally ancient about this sport. Like, it, it's been claimed to be one of the fastest field sports on the planet or even the fastest so it's really something else to watch so if you're near a computer and you haven't seen it you can type hurling h-u-r-l-i-n-g into youtube and get an idea of what we're talking about so uh, teams are made up of 15 players on a large pitch and each of them has a long uh, wooden stick made from an, an an ash tree. It's called the come on. Right, sure. And as uh, sometimes uh, the matches are called Clash of the Ash because of this. Uh-huh. Uh, the come on looks a bit like a hockey stick, I suppose. Uh, but it's wider and it's flatter at the bottom. Yeah, the ball is quite small and dense and it's called a slither. It's traditionally made of cork and wrapped in a, a leather lining. And uh, so the aim, might not be too much of a surprise, is to get the ball through the other team's goalpost. And there are actually two kinds of goals you can score, uh, a bit like rugby, I suppose, either above the crossbar, which gets you one point, or below the bar, which gets you three. Right, and it's really mesmerising to watch the play, actually, because there's a few different ways to keep the ball in play in the game. Um, And, like, all of them together involve this mind-boggling degree of skill and nuance. Uh, So, for instance, you can hit the slither, that's the ball, with your come on. You can hit it a bit like a golf swing, if you want. Uh, But you can also slap or kick the ball short distances between players while you're running. You can also catch the slither in the air, but you can only carry it for a maximum of four steps. After that, if you want to keep control of it, you have to bounce it every three steps or balance it at the end of your come on. So on the broad, rounded bit at the end of the stick. So you have players uh, sprinting in and out between all these oncoming opponents and all the while they're like gently bouncing this hard little ball on their hurling stick. And I mean, like while the player has the ball in their possession, other players can shoulder charge them uh, to try and, and get through. And none of these guys are, are wearing, uh, guys or girls, are wearing protective padding. These days, most of them wear helmets. I think that came in uh, relatively recently. Uh, but for a long time, they were just, you know, just wearing jerseys. So Tim, before the foundation of the GAA, these hurling matches were often played with between entire villages, isn't that it? Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, Until the game was formalised, it seems that there were these marathon matches involving, like, hundreds of people at a time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, they could get pretty violent um, uh, in some sources. Um, Some of our listeners will be familiar with the Statutes of Kilkenny of 1366. You remember that from school, Naomi? Vaguely. That was was a notorious uh, set of medieval laws designed to stop English colonists from going native by taking up too much Irish culture. So those laws, um, you know, they forbid colonists from like wearing Irish clothes or speaking Irish or marrying Irish people. But one of them was um, stopping um, the colonists from playing hurling. Ah. Um, It reads, I quote, Do not henceforth use the plays which men called whorlings. That's spelled with an O. (laughs) With great sticks and a ball upon the ground from which great evils and maims have arisen. (laughs) Great evils and maims. Uh, An early Sergio Ramos at work uh, there, perhaps. (laughs) I understand, too, that hurling was quite popular among the Anglo-Irish aristocracy. Yeah, right. So more recently in the 17th and 18th centuries, maybe not to play themselves, but the Anglo-Irish aristocracy quite liked it as a spectator sport. Hmm. So it was common for uh, landlords to allow their tenants to play hurling um, and Gaelic football on their landed estates and then the upper classes could sit back and watch the game so mm. you know everyone's a winner basically it, uh, some landlords even set up some of the first hurling clubs and that was long before the GAA came along um, and then, yeah that was a more or less the same situation with Gaelic so let's get into Gaelic football which is the most popular Gaelic sport in Ireland um, and if you say football a lot of the time people will assume you're talking about Gaelic football in Ireland but People also just call it Gaelic. Mm. And so for that reason, Irish people, myself included, often use the word soccer to refer to the sort of more popular international game. And I know people in the UK find that weird. 
is the kind yeah, of Americanism. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. So uh, Gaelic football doesn't quite have the same illustrious history as hurling does. You don't you don't see it in the mythology or anything. It's a bit similar to Aussie rules football. So there's a lot of hand passing and bouncing and punching the ball and this and that. The game we know today, of course, stems from the 19th century. Uh, lots of different forms of football, as it were, you know, um, have been played all over the world since antiquity. And this was just the Irish version of that. Now, in Europe and in English-speaking countries in particular, it became popular during the second half of the 19th century to formalise these ball games that have been going on and, and give them standard rules and structures and organisation. So public schools and universities often had their own rules at the time. So you end up with Cambridge rules, football and rugby school football which of course that one was pretty successful yeah sure right uh, and, and different uh, national football associations emerged in different countries or at the same time with their own rules so you end up with sports like soccer in england which of course is just an abbreviation of association football no uh, way get... i had no idea there you go did you oh, did no? you? yeah there you go no soccer soccer um you get australian rules football in australia and american football in the usa and it you know, this whole movement was tied up at the time with these growing notions that organized sport, um, especially for men, could lead to this spiritual improvement and social cohesion uh, more largely. This is something that's often referred to as muscular Christianity. And it really does continue to influence how we treat organized sports today, definitely, if, if you ask me. Okay, so Gaelic football emerged around the same time within this international context. But with Gaelic and the formalization of all Gaelic games, there was another extremely important and unique dimension at play. Right, exactly. The foundation of the Gaelic Athletic Association was a key moment in the Irish Cultural Revolution. From the very beginning, its foundations were deeply implicated with the Irish Nationalist Project in the early 20th century and late 19th. Uh, some of its first patrons, to give you a clue, were Charles Stuart Parnell and Michael Davitt. And those are two of the most high-profile Irish nationalist agitators of the 19th century. If you tuned in to our 1916 episode, you'll know what we're talking about here. After the Great Famine of the mid-19th century, there was this phenomenal cultural backlash in Ireland. Many people decided to reject all British and colonial standards of culture and instead embrace things that they considered to be purely Irish. Now, this movement was being expressed all over the place in music, in dress, in literature, in language and politics. And through the GAA, it was being expressed in sport. Uh, the GAA was founded by a cultural revivalist called Michael Cusack in Thurles in County Tipperary in 1884. And it was he founded it specifically to promote and celebrate what he called indigenous Irish sports. Uh, Cusack was a native Irish speaker from Clare. He was born in 1847, so-called Black 47, since it was the most devastating year of, of the Irish famine. Mm -hmm. um, and he actually launched the GAA on the 1st of November, or Samhain, which of course is traditionally seen as the Gaelic New Year. So it symbolised this kind of rebirth. Wow. Mm. The flagship stadium was established at Croke Park on the north side of Dublin. It was pretty humble to begin with, but it has since grown to be the third largest stadium in all of Europe. And it has that capacity, 82,300 spectators, and it's always packed out in finals. But to hear more about how the GAA became such a historical force in Ireland, I spoke to Paul Rouse of University College Dublin. He's a historian of sport and the GAA. He told me, if you want to understand modern Ireland, you cannot understand it without getting the GAA. The Gaelic Athletic Association is central to Irish social and cultural life. The very fact of its physical presence in every parish of Ireland matters. Now, there was too much made of this in the sense that the GAA doesn't have a monopoly on volunteerism. It doesn't have a monopoly on serving the community. There are other sporting organisations 
across soccer and rugby and other sports where people give times voluntarily for other adults and especially for children. They too deserve equal mention in terms of what they do for all those people. So there is no monopoly on this. However, in saying that, if you want to understand modern Ireland, you have to look at sport. You cannot ignore sport and expect to understand what it is like to live in Ireland. There is not a weekend goes by where sport doesn't dominate the conversations of large swathes of the population. I accept that there are loads of people who have no interest in sport who would pull the curtains if there's a sporting game on in their front garden and that's totally natural as well. But this isn't a matter of liking. This is a matter of understanding just how important sporting endeavour is to the lives of many people. So if you accept that sport matters and on any terms it matters from politics to social matters to economics it just it matters then you cannot understand Ireland without understanding the largest sporting organisation in the country, which is the Gaelic Athletic Association. And because of the peculiar nature of the organisation of the Gaelic Athletic Association, with its very specific ties between participation and locality, so you play for where you're from, with the very specific sense that there is, you are representing a place. It adds another layer of meaning to what is involved here. So there's the physical manifestation of the games that are involved. There's the fact of representing place. And third of all, there is the basic fact of involvement of so many people in the association on a day-to-day basis. So you take those three pillars and you create around it an understanding of a key dimension of modern Irish life. The aim of the GAA was to take control of Irish sports. And from the very beginning, Rouse said, it was extremely local, but international too. Its first aim was to take control of Irish athletics. That was to take control of all the sports days that were taking place around Ireland. Its second aim was to invent, establish a new football game, which it called Gaelic football. And its third ambition was to take this ancient stick and ball game out of history, the game we know as hurling, a game which we know has been from the ancient Irish text was played here for over a thousand years. There are physical remnants of hurling balls found out the bogs of Sligo, which have been carbon dated to the 12th century. Hurleys have been carbon dated to the 16th century. So this game was pushed to the margins because of the encroachment of British sports and the fact that a new way of playing sports built around clubs and governing bodies had been established, but hurling hadn't come into this. And what the Gaelic Athletic Association did was take hurling out of history and out of the margins of Irish society and enclose it in a modern playing field. And from that point on, it prospered. So people would have been playing it at that stage, but it would have been, there wouldn't have been standard rules or it would have just been quite a casual thing or what was it? There has kind of been a story within history that, that Hurling had, had died by 1884. But this is not true. We know that Hurling was played in, for example, North Tipperary, in East Galway, in North Kerry, around Cork City, in West Donegal and in East Antrim into the 1880s. What hadn't happened, though, was this modern phenomenon of centralised rules with clubs being established everywhere. I should say, by the way, in passing, that uh, hurling was being played also in Irish immigrant communities in Melbourne and in Boston and Argentina and in, 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 in England uh, and in Toronto and Canada. So there was a tradition of stick and ball play, which the Irish took with them everywhere, and they called it hurling. Um, now, it's not, it wasn't anarchic. It wasn't mad. It was very physical. It wasn't disorganised. It just hadn't organised in the modern way with written rules and a league and championship based around clubs. Rouse told me the foundation of the association in 1884 is deeply linked to the politics of the time and in particular the land war. So 
So that was a mass political agitation in the countryside against absent and exploitative landlords that ultimately led to the mass redistribution of Irish lands to small tenant farmers. The reason why the Gaelic Athletic Association was founded is partly reflective of the fact that Ireland was part of the United Kingdom at the very moment when the modern sporting world was being made. What I mean by that is that the sports which sports such as soccer and rugby, tennis, badminton, all of those sports were largely codified in England and spread from England across the United Kingdom, of which Ireland was a part in the 19th century, of course. But it was a very peculiar part of the United Kingdom because although there were people within Ireland who were more than happy to be part of the United Kingdom and the worlders who were entirely resistant of that and they believed in a separate Irish identity and they reacted against this encroachment of English sports and they formed their own organisation for the propagation of sports under the auspices of the Gaelic Athletic Association. The peculiar politics of Ireland in the 1880s has to be looked at. In the first instance, there was the land war, this extraordinary revolution of property, which ultimately saw the land owned by about 5,000 families, the landlords of Ireland, being transformed and transferred over 50 years to the hands of a peasant proprietorship. So that's the first instance. So that, that's happening in the 1880s, Begin, began to happen from late 1879 and into the 1880s. The second thing is Charles Stuart Parnell seemed on the cusp in 1884 of winning a Home Rule Parliament for Dublin, that Ireland would have its own leg- legislature for the first time since 1800. So that was on the way. In the background, the Irish Republican Brotherhood were still arguing, still trying to lead an, an armed revolution against, against British rule. And also wrapped around this, you have the stirrings of the emergence of a form of cultural nationalism around language and literature and poetry um, with the establishment of organisations such as the Society for the Preservation of the Irish Language and Eintacht which were kind of creating this idea of a new sense of Irish, which was also really importantly being published in newspapers, cheap newspapers and in cheap books, which again were available for the first time during this period. And... Is that association with politics, is that something that these sports carried with them into the 20th century and up to the present day? What the GAA did from the very beginning was incredibly potent propaganda. They looked at the world of sport and they said very simply to Irish people, you have a choice. The choice is very simply this. You can choose the English way of playing sport or the Irish way of playing sport. Now, as we all know, that was incredibly simplistic, sort of self-serving way of promoting this because there were very many people who were just as Irish as others but they liked to play rugby or they liked to play soccer or they liked to play cricket they just chose those particular games because they saw it as no expression of nationality to play a mere game there were however a group and a hardcore who throughout the 19th century and especially in the early years of the 20th century saw in the Gaelic Athletic Association the opportunity to kind of further the project of national liberation who would use the Gaelic Athletic Association to create a divide between Englishness and Irishness, who would pull into their ranks and create a sense of Irishness which would in itself feed into notions of of Irish independence. And you have to remember, this is at the point, it wasn't that the GEA politicised sport. Sport was already politicised. For example, rugby and soccer and tennis and cricket flew the Union Jack above their meetings, had marching bands of the British Empire play the songs of the Empire at their events. What the GEA did was simply turn that on its head, wrap it in the flag of Irishness, play Irish music at those games, speak the Irish language and say to people, OK, we've been colonised, but we survive. 
it is true that this is the greatest empire the world has ever known. It spreads across one-fifth uh, of the people of the earth and one-quarter one of its landmass. But we are ourselves an ancient, vibrant people. Hurling is the greatest evidence of this. Our literature is the greatest evidence of this. And despite centuries of colonisation, we are still here. And this is a vivid expression of our Irishness. And you come and play our games and express your Irishness through that way. I suppose it makes sense, really, that the GAA would be so important to nationalist politics at this time. Uh, you know, mass sporting events like this were a really effective way to gather large numbers of people together and promote, for instance, other revivalist activities. So even to this day, one of the GAA's first rules, rule number four, I think, is, I quote, The association shall actively support the Irish language, traditional Irish dancing, music, song, and other aspects of Irish culture. It shall foster an awareness and love of the national ideals in the people of Ireland and assist in promoting a community spirit through its clubs. Croke Park, the spiritual home of the GAA, became a symbol of Irish nationalism in its own right. In fact, it was at the centre of one of the defining events in the Irish War of Independence. That's the three-year guerrilla war that raged in the lead-up to partition in 1921. Right, so in a nutshell, the, the Irish War of Independence, I suppose, Naomi, was like the fallout from 1916 in, in its own way. Mm -hmm. uh, so two years after that a huge rebellion in 1916, the Irish Nationalist Party Sinn Féin had won this landslide victory in Westminster. Yeah, and the newly elected MPs took that as a democratic mandate for independence. So rather than taking their seats in London, they organised themselves into an independent government called Dáil Éireann in Dublin. Right. So this was obviously completely illegal under British rule. So the British sent in a legion of paramilitaries, which became known as the Black and Tans, to crush this new revolutionary republic. Um, and then on the other side, the Dáil organised its own army called the Irish Republican Army. That's known today as the Old IRA, uh, as opposed, of course, to the Provisional IRA, which most people would know much better, uh, which emerged decades later in Northern Ireland. So around this time, the country was swarming with revolutionaries. The Black and Tans were terrorising the whole country and they were trying to basically smoke out the rebel army. And you had two rival governments claiming jurisdiction over the island. So you might be wondering how this ties in with the GAA. Well, on the morning of the 21st of November in 1920, the IRA had learned that they had been infiltrated by 18 British informants. And Michael Collins, who was the finance minister of this revolutionary government, he sent in a set of mercenaries to find these informants and he had them shot in ambushes across Dublin. Now that was a disaster for British intelligence because not only had they lost all their informants, but because loads of other informants began to flee the country, fearing that they would be next. So it really crushed their whole intelligence operation in Ireland. And, and we know what comes next, retaliation. And this retaliation was pretty swift. That same afternoon, in fact, British security forces went to Croke Park and they surrounded the stadium. And inside, there was a Gaelic football match happening, uh, taking place between Dublin and Tipperary. There were about 5,000 spectators inside Croke Park at the time. Now, the British knew there would be some nationalist sympathisers among the crowd, maybe even perpetrators of the assassinations that morning. They claimed that their plan was to pen in the entire crowd and, and search all the spectators for concealed weapons. 
But straight away, it got completely out of hand. Right, so you have to remember, of course, that Irish people were terrified of the Black and Tans during this period. Uh, the Black and Tans could pretty much act with impunity, and they had been roaming around the country carrying out torture and arson attacks and the like. They burned Cork. Uh, yes, in, in, like, yes, literally burned down Cork City. Uh, so the <laughs> moment um, uh, that uh, security forces entered Croke Park, um, uh, you can imagine uh, the site. Everyone started to panic and, and try to flee in the stands. And in response to this generalised panic, the British opened fire on the crowd. So reportedly the first round of shooting lasted 90 seconds, going through 114 rounds of ammunition. So you can imagine the devastation and the panic this would cause in a crowded stadium. Dozens were gravely injured and many were shot to death, while others were trampled to death just in the confusion. So one section of the crowd managed to find a way out of the stadium, but as the crowds streamed into the streets, they were they were met with armoured cars, which also opened fire. So the dead ranged in age from 57 years old to just 10 years old. Basically, no weapons were actually found in the end. I think they found one. Um, and even worse, the British administration tried to cover it up straight away. Um, they were really embarrassed about it. And that led to outrage, even from unionists at the time were outraged at that. As happened so often over this period, the retaliation had the completely opposite effect to what was designed. So the fact that this happened on a GAA pitch was was hugely symbolic. It was it was an attack on the very notion of Irishness, and the fact that it had led to so many innocent lives being lost that turned the Irish public ever further against British rule. Sure, and it was a huge embarrassment, of course, for Britain in the eyes of the international media, which was happening quite a lot over those years in Britain's dealings with Ireland. Mm -hmm. The British spies who had been assassinated that morning were taken back to London, and they were given a public state funeral in Westminster Cathedral. But then when one MP tried to bring up the Croke Park massacre that had followed that uh, in the House of Commons, he was shouted down and actually physically assaulted by other ministers in the government. Today, Crook Park's Hogan stand still commemorates one of the footballers, I'm so sad that they were players, mm. who was shot on that day. As well as that, you have Hill 16. So that's part of the stadium where Dublin supporters have their core support and it's a really iconic, symbolic place. Many people believe that Hill 16, the stand, was literally built from the rubble of O'Connell Street after the 1916 Rising. So they believe they're actually standing on the ruins of the rebellion, the foundational myth of the Irish state. That's actually not true. Hill 16 was built before the Rising and was actually initially named Hill 60 after a First World War battle. But those facts have been completely forgotten because the myth is much more powerful. Mm. Now, Naomi, to this day, this deep association between the GAA and the Irish Revolution has made it quite a problematic sport in Northern Ireland, which of course remained part of the UK after independence. In the North, the GAA was seen for a long time as an exclusively nationalist sport. So, for example, when games are played, even in the North, the Republic's flag is flown and the Republic's national anthem is played. GAA clubs in Northern Ireland were also common targets for loyalist paramilitaries during, during the Troubles. This is changing bit by bit. These are highly popular sports after all. And since the peace agreement in 1998, there's been increasing cross-community participation. So even last week, Arlene Foster, the leader of the Unionist DUP, congratulated the Fermanagh GAA team on a recent victory. She's from Fermanagh herself. And in return, the Fermanagh team invited her to their next match. 
So there's a little reaching out there. Yeah, that was nice, actually. There was certainly a breakthrough of sorts in this regard in 2007. Um, around that time, Ireland's rugby stadium was under construction and the national rugby team had nowhere to play um, since the GAA, with its own huge stadium, had nonetheless always expressly forbidden any non-Irish sports to be played in Croke Park. Uh, so in the end, after a lot of debate... Uh, Croke Park decided to temporarily relax the rule and let them in. And as a result, in February of 2007, there was this extraordinary moment when Ireland ended up playing England at rugby in Croke Park, which is a moment that, you know, many people never would have thought they would have seen. Yeah, I think everybody remembers that game, really. It, it was such an emotional moment. And in a way, it was a real symbol of peace and reconciliation. Because just a few years after the Good Friday Agreement, and it was this strange commemoration of everything that had happened since the stadium was created. You know, God Save the Queen was sung in Croke Park, followed by the Irish anthem, Aaron Naveen. And a lot of the Irish squad were in floods of tears. It's, it's a moment that's gone down in history. victory and us Englishmen giving a pretty lusty rendition of the English anthem but I think Ireland may just have the edge on them when it comes to the home anthem President of the GAA has witnessed many great occasions and he, like the rest of us, will remember this one. What a moment. Anyway, Naomi, let's get back to the future. Uh, did you know that the GAA is one of the faster growing sports in France right now? I did not know that, Tim. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I, I suppose in a way I'm not surprised. GAA is played basically anywhere that you find Irish immigrants. So you'll get loads of clubs all around the world in cities like Boston, New York, Melbourne and Sydney. And the same goes for many European cities, of course, right now. But something I found amazing was that in France, the sport has taken off mostly among the local French population. You know, they, they love a weird sport, actually. This is... Um... <laughs> <laughs> this is a French thing. They, like Quidditch also took off massively. You know they You're play Quidditch. Kidding. 
They yeah, run around I, with brooms, like I assume they can't actually fly. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, I had to ask, but yes, they don't <laughs> actually fly, but they do like, you know, straddle a broom and they run around. <laughs> I doubt this is a purely French thing. Okay, so alongside Quidditch, they've also taken up Gaelic games. Yes, indeed. And I like, you know, <laughs> one of the players um, that I met actually um, compared the two uh, straight out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, I, I headed out to, to uh, a stadium in the east of Paris to speak to a local team there. Uh, by the way, Naomi, I'd like to uh, dedicate this report to Sarah Dibris McRaid, who sponsored this segment. And Sarah would like us to make a shout out to the Centre for Irish Studies at Aarhus University in Denmark. So hi to everyone there and thanks very much, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. All right, let's hear from the Paris Gales GAA Club. I'm coming to you from the eastern edges of Paris. I'm not very far from the famous Boulevard Parafique, which encircles the city and separates Paris proper from the banlieue on the other side. And it's a pretty odd neighborhood around here. You know, this used to be an old military buffer zone uh, right up until the 1920s that went all around the city. And uh, up until then, it was forbidden to build uh, on this territory. So today it's all been filled in with stuff like golf courses and cemeteries and, of course, sports stadiums. And that's where I'm headed today. I'm on my way to Stade Louis Lumière, where I will be dropping in on a training session with the Paris Gales, the city's very own GAA club. Stade Louis Lumière is a fair-sized stadium, uh, but by the time I got there it was absolutely packed with different groups from young children to older adults, all practicing different athletics. You know, there were runners sprinting past, rugby players diving around the place, and scores of different coaches yelling instructions at various groups in coloured bibs. And there, in the midst of the mall, a familiar flash of men and women donning Gaelic football jerseys were warming up. When I caught up with a few of the players in the changing rooms, I was surprised to learn that the vast majority of them were French. Uh, bah Clément, du coup, uh, je viens de La Rochelle et maintenant je, je travaille sur Paris et du coup je joue avec uh, le Paris Gales au football gaélique. That's Clément. He's 29 from La Rochelle, but works here in Paris, where he's been playing with the Gales for four years. Uh, I heard about it from a friend, Clément says. He invited me to training. He said there was a good atmosphere, a good mix of French and Irish, and he said the game was captivating, so I jumped right in. I've never been to Ireland, Clément tells me, but now I'd like to go for a while, maybe for two weeks, or maybe just for a weekend in Dublin. The first time I played was weird, but the game is easy to pick up. I like that there's some contact, but not too much, and that it's such a fast sport. I had to explain the game to my family. I still need to update them sometimes when they watch a match, but they think it's really cool and that there's a really nice atmosphere. Down the narrow hallway, which is shared with maybe 20 other dressing rooms, I met up with Hugh, the team's captain, busy inflating Gaelic footballs with a hand pump. My name is uh, Hugh, Hugh McGowan from Dublin, mm -hmm. 31 years of age. I live in Paris. I'm here uh, for the last five years now. I work in spirits, selling Irish whiskey. I had a colleague who was playing and he said, oh, come on, come on, you've got to come down. Each time I'd use the same excuse. Oh, I forgot my gear, I forgot my gear. And uh, in the end, uh, he just got me and went, look it, I've got gear for you. And I ended up coming down. And really enjoyed it and didn't look back. Okay, and now you're the captain of the team? Yeah, there's loads of people, we have a huge committee, um, so the committee will meet once a month and then we've got training at least twice a week, uh, sometimes three times a week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, each training session is about an hour and a half, two hours, 
and then uh, committee meetings probably the same again. Right. So you know you're looking maybe six hours a week. But the great thing is that uh, I mean you'll you'll see here that most of the lads coming out here are all French. The uh, dress room's almost full. There's only three Irish lads. Right. So uh, you know that tells you something, and they keep coming back. And the great thing is they bring their friends back as well. And that's how the club glow grows. It's not by attracting more Irish people, which we would like to do. So if anybody's listening to this, they want to play Gaelic football, you're more than welcome to come down, find us on Facebook, and uh, you'll know where to find us. But uh, yeah, at the moment we're growing primarily with French people. All right, okay. and how do they find out about it? Mostly through friends. Right. So we will organize uh, what, what we call I suppose, discovery sessions where we try and introduce the sport to, to different people. And we'll do one of them maybe every three months. And from that, uh, we hopefully get maybe one, two, three girls and guys. And yeah, that always helps. We have a lot of different guys from, from different sports, be it Olympic handball, rugby, uh, soccer. So um, we try and just you know incorporate different things from different sports. So you know the carrying of the ball a little bit like hand, Olympic, Olympic handball, and um, you know being close to your man, you know, and getting really, really close a little bit like basketball, different mm. things like that. So we try and um, compare it to other sports so that they they can really uh, understand it better for themselves. Okay. And how long have you been playing yourself? Uh, since I came over to France. I played as a kid, like up to about under 10s, and now uh, took it up again now, now that I'm back. Oh, so this is a revival for yourself as well? It isn't, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. And do you think that you, this would have happened if you hadn't moved away? No, I doubt I'd be playing Gaelic football back home. It's gotten me a lot more interested in the sport, you know, and uh, you know, using things like GEA Go to keep on top of how the games are going back home as well. Um, so, yeah, it really give, drives an interest in the sport again, for sure. It was the club's vice president, Shane, who invited me here in the first place. I asked him how the club has managed to become so popular with the locals. Shane Harrison, um, I'm from Dublin. I've been living in Paris. In December now, it'll be eight years, seven okay. and a half years. I'm in it for the long run, yeah. I've always played sports. So when I moved over, so Paris is a big city. I didn't really know anybody apart from my, my wife now. So joining was a, was a, was a good way to uh, get a network, um, make friends, you know. A lot of those guys have been to my wedding and I've been to theirs, so uh, um, that's what really motivated me. And uh, you used to be the captain we just heard. Yeah, yeah. But you've been promoted to what? I've been promoted to uh, vice president. That's what happens when you get older. It'll happen to Hugh as well. I've been given really the task of uh, sponsorship. We've been in schools, we've done demos in schools, we've trained some French PE teachers in the game. The objective would be to eventually have a, have a youth team. Um, there's a few things that we're lacking in that, and that's full-time volunteers. We get emails all the time, we get you know, students, maybe 16, 15, that have done three weeks in Ireland, they may have done a tour of Crow Park and have uh, come back and wanted to get involved. And we very recently had two 16-year-old French guys that came back that day and then wrote to us on Facebook wanting to come hurling training. Okay, so they had seen, they had seen hurling in Ireland and they came looking forward here? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And when you see things like that, it's very encouraging, you know, it's very encouraging. There weren't too many around when I was there, which is unsurprising really since I was outside the men's changing rooms, but there is a huge female participation in the club as well. The women's football team, much like the men's, Shane told me, was mostly made up of Parisian locals. When I first moved over, there was very little French girls on the team. It was all, all Irish, all Irish, and now it's, it's almost the, the opposite. The coach is French, Julie, she's, uh, she's French, she's been playing with the club for, for 10 years now. So. We used to have a camogie team, 
And that was when we had a really solid core group of Irish girls that had played back home. Um, and they were very good as well. And since, you know, there's a lot of turnover, a lot of them have gone home. And then trying to pick that up, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit tricky. We'll get there. I mean, um, this week we got asked um, by a French girl who uh, is interested in playing camogie, not a game mm. of football, camogie. So um, she'll have to come hurling training with the lads. And okay, and whatever about um, Gaelic football then, I suppose hurling is a whole, a whole other uh, kettle of fish, really, for, for people who don't know the sport. How do they take to that in general? <laughs> they think it's a bit mad, huh? <laughs> you know, they think, they think it's, a bit, it's a bit mad, you know. Mo- most, most of the players that you see there are French. Right. And they're coming from soccer, rugby, even Olympic handball. So they're used to ball games, but there's not really anything in France that compares with hurling. There's not really ice hockey, there's no field hockey, there's no lacrosse really. There's nothing like hurling that exists in the world. So um, when they see that, they think it's, uh, it's really something mad. It's fantastic to see in some towns uh, across France where an Irish person probably has never been that there's a Gaelic football team there that's set up organically by French people from the local people that we see it's always a very positive reaction um, the tournaments themselves are great there's always a super atmosphere one thing that we do here in France is after every tournament there's a big meal with all the teams a few drinks involved a lot of singing so uh, it's really, it's really good to, to be able to mix with the other players. The atmosphere is fantastic. If you looked at all of the other European countries, France is easily the country which has the most native players. You know, this, well, Belgium, you know, comparing France to Belgium, it's not the same thing. But the, the club in Belgium is almost exclusively Irish. Mm-hmm. Amsterdam as well, they're all Luxembourg, they're all more or less exclusively Irish. But in, in France, and then, you know, I'd have to mention Spain and Italy as well. It's a good, um, good amount of native players that have taken it up. It's not the same thing as in, as in Ireland, but... Um, it still does, you know, you meet Irish people, you have the crack, you watch the matches, it's, yeah, it is, it is a touch of home as well, it is a touch of home. Oh, what a lovely report, Tim. And it's really exciting to think that GAA is, is growing and flourishing so much in unexpected places. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, for two non-sporty types, Naomi, this has been a really fun topic to cover, don't you think? Absolutely. There's, there's so much enthusiasm and goodwill as well in this subject. Like, it's just been a pleasure. Listeners, if you've been seduced by the lure of the GAA, do get searching for your local team. No doubt there is one, uh, wherever you are. And I get the feeling you won't regret it. In the meantime, that's all from us for now. Uh, Don't forget to check out our mini-series, Half Pints, available only to our Patreon subscribers. And if you like the show and you want to help us make more episodes, you too can become a Patreon supporter and get access to our Half Pint episodes for the price of a cup of tea this month. So just head over to patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. And of course, we also love your reviews. It helps other people to find us. So even if you're a bit short in cash, you can give us a huge boost by writing us a nice review in whatever app you use to listen to the show. Thank you so much. That would be amazing. And thanks for joining us.